0: Welcome to Meeting What? I'm Matt Wiseman. Today, I just wanted to talk about Joe Biden's first days in office and the transition that um, occurred. I got three parts for you. First, we're just going to do some updates and some big stories that happened over the week, and then we'll talk about Biden's days. And then we're going to talk about the Democratic Party and how they operate and how Biden is kind of indicative of that right now. Okay, that's a lot to cover, so bear with me. Thank you. So some updates, just to go through some uh, stories that came up all throughout the week. It's been a crazy week, as you can imagine, and it's not just the inauguration. So um, let's talk a little bit uh, about the inauguration so during the inauguration um of course after the attack on the capitol on the 6th of january this is only two weeks later that we're having the inauguration and it was for a week that whole week and and indefinitely really the national guardsmen were there like i think forty thousand people sleeping in the the hall of congress so they up security but they up security in the most secure place even though there's this attack um so there's still a lot to be investigated about the attack and what happened and what's happening there as far as accountability uh but yeah it was a police state an authoritarian police state was what dc was and it was not able to function and that was the intent so there's more that happens in In D.C., it is a city, it is a thriving city, it has other businesses, a lot of them are dependent upon government, but it was an authoritarian police state and business was not able to function as usual or as usual during the pandemic, Um, and that's something that's very concerning that we should look at and we should be very cognizant of going forward. Next, Larry King, a journalist at 87 years old, still going strong he got covid and he died this week may you rest in peace a lot of people are talking recently and I think this only developed over the past three four days uh, today is the twenty eighth that there was these retail stock investors on reddit that saw that these this particular fund um, investment funds and hedge fund managers were actually trying to short and therefore kill the ownership of GameStop. They were trying to drive the price down and bet against it, surviving the pandemic. And they were also doing AMC and some other companies, you know, because people are not going to the theaters. People are not able to go outside and buy games physically. They're getting them all online. So they were using the pandemic and using the stock to make money by forcing it out of business, which is called short-selling. And when these elite hedge fund managers, you know, the point zero one percent the richest of the rich, multi-billionaires, um, they, when they want to do something, they get, get it done usually. And usually no one stops them. So a few retail investors, you know, average people, people that are doing okay, they got together on Reddit and they got the price up. They bought the stock. Why not? The stock market is free to everybody. It's a public thing. Um, And it increased the stock tremendously. So why is this important? Well, it's good to see the elites and the people that everything's been working for, and they get everything that they want to actually have to suffer a little bit, have to pay some consequences for taking risks and, you know, get some losses. Because they've been rigging the system and harming real people, working people like the employees at GameStop or the company of GameStop. Um, you know, not not that I'm going to defend the corporation, but this is a public corporation that's going through some hard times, and these people were betting to go to business. Same thing with AMC, and uh, they were these hedge fund guys were just trying to make money, and they were trying to force it out of business. So these real, uh, retail investors, you know, small, you know, people are spending maybe $500 or $1,000 or two, and they're making money. They were making money because it was growing. And, and that's how stock markets work. You know, people are voting against it. Then there some people are buying, some people are selling. Some people are gonna win if it increases, and some people are gonna lose if it increases. Vice versa, if it's, uh, Decreasing. Now, what happened was that all of the people on the media side of things were saying, oh, maybe we need regulation. Maybe this isn't okay that the retail investor can control the stock market or have any influence on stock. We want to kill this, and that was the idea. We're going to kill this business. And, you know, the elites should get what they want. And they prayed it out like all of the financial um, media was basically against these retail people getting involved so that basically happened very quickly and they these these uh, little apps the investor apps like robin hood and a few others were not allowing people to buy or sell and in robin hood's case they were actually um, manipulating the market which is what they were accusing these retail investors are doing on reddit so now they're calling for censorship and they're calling for regulation from the elites from the people that have tried to decentralize and and uh deregulate wall street they lost money so now they have to attack so it really is this class struggle thing going on Uh, it's very interesting but robin hood the robin hood investing app basically made it so that if you you know 50 percent of their their uh members had some stock in AMC and GameStop and they made it so all of their members cannot buy anymore. All they can do is sell. So driving the stock down, driving the stock in the business out of business, giving the elites exactly what they want. And that's not, not fair, it's not right, that is stock manipulation and they should be in jail for that. That kind of decision is not okay. All right. Um, the GOP. So it, it was. there was a question there after the riots, uh, after, sorry, the attack on Capitol Hill. Um, there was a question there what the GOP was going to do. A lot of people that were the donor class actually pulled out. So the suburbanites Center maybe have conservative views. They were, you know, propping up, you know, Sheldon Addison and all these people, they were propping up the GOP for many, many years. And they were like, we're not going to donate to you. We're not going to get our money because this is not something we support. And they're doing it in the name of our president. And they're doing it in the name of our party. And is not what we're about. So it seemed like there was going to be a rift between the donor class and the traditional conservatives and these Trump loyalists. They used to be considered, like, national populists, but Trump has proven that he's a standard conservative, uh, you know, not even a neocon because he's not a warmonger like George W., but he was, you know, in favor of coups all throughout South America. He was, you know, in favor of um, tax relief and huge tax cuts, and he was in favor of, you know, massive military spending. So is he anything new? No, but he just wanted personal loyalty. And so there was this rift between the people, the Stop the Steal people, the Marjorie Taylor Greens, and the Matt Gates, and all that, and the traditional Republicans um, that seemed to be controlling the party. Now, with the impeachment thing coming to a head, it seems that... The GOP is doubling down and they are all going to be, if reluctant, Trump loyalists. Because something like 40 to 60% of the GOP base supports Donald Trump. and Donald Trump still wants to be involved in politics. So unless they want to alienate themselves from the base, they seem to have made that choice. And that's a scary future because the prospect means that they going forward are going to not have any money and they will have a base that is aggressive and demanding and only really believes that Trump is the answer. And he as this cult of personality that can change things, not any kind of policy. Literally the RNC, when they had their nomination of Trump, they had no platform. They still have no platform. So there's that. Um, Two more little stories. Uh, There was a push, a letter by 50 House Democrats on the Progressive Caucus, within the Progressive Caucus. It was about half of the uh, people in the Progressive Caucus. A letter to Biden that says they want uh, monthly checks during the pandemic, this totally makes sense. Why wouldn't there be? I mean, that's what you get in Canada, that's what you get in France, that's what you're getting in a lot of a lot of countries, especially in countries that are wealthy like the US is. Um, just it's it's a letter and it was put out there. And it's it's definitely in line with what we should expect. But there's no threats there, there's no weight there. It's not saying we won't vote for nothing. They're saying this is what you should go with. <laughs> And if you've been following the $2,000 check from Georgia elections, um, you understand why that's funny. So it has no teeth, and it's a signaling thing. It's just unfortunate. I wish that they would fight. And lastly, uh, the the Iran deal. So they are trying to reestablish the Iran nuclear deal that that Obama had set forward. Um, And... Of course, under Trump, there was resistance to that. They pulled out of it, and they really backed Israel um, moving the the, the uh, embassy into Jerusalem um, no into Tel Aviv uh, no into Jerusalem from Tel Aviv, so it 's this big city that 's kind of secular and now they 're putting it to the uh, religious capital, um, signaling something very important. But also, uh, and that caused controversy with the Palestinians and other people. Um, then there was, of course, the war in Yemen, which is the Saudi-led war in Yemen. You know, the Yemenis people are literally being uh, killed, in their their home around their homeland invaded. And the people that are defending Yemen are the Houthis, and the U.S. is now called the Houthis terrorists, uh, which allows us it denies aid to anyone there so any nonprofit that would give the yemenis some help and support their government and maybe just give them some food or medicine that's all denied now humanitarian aid is denied now because they are terrorists so anyway uh there's been a positive sign um that biden wants to get into the uh the iran deal and he is uh, he, he froze the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabian arms deals, the arms deals from the U.S. to them. So that's a very positive sign. Okay, we're going to talk about Biden. Biden's first days. Okay, before I get into the meat and potatoes and and my analysis of what he's doing and and why he might be doing it, let me tell you about his executive orders. Uh, As I just mentioned, he froze the arms deals with Saudi Arabia and the UAE. He also did an executive order to get trans people, uh, allow trans people back in the military and um, ending some private prisons from the Department of Justice, the DOJ. He is not ending any uh, ICE facilities, Department of Je- uh, uh, Private Prisons. So they're still out there and there's still these human rights violations. Um, even though there is a, a bill that he's trying to lead with for immigration policies and a pathway to citizenship, which is a partisan thing and it's very controversial. You know, the whole re- resurrecting DACA thing. Um, he that the the ending private prisons or at least in the DOJ, which is less than ten percent, is part of his racial equality, as racial equity kind of plan, so or his executive orders and whatnot, um, and so it, it it's good that he's signaling that this is important to him. I hope this isn't the end of those things, but it, it definitely is a a, a good signal. Now uh, he. Canceled the Keystone XL pipeline, and threatened uh, fossil fuels uh, that they and believes that they should not have their subsidies. These are good things. So if he is actually serious about doing something about climate change, it's a good first step. Um, but he he's still adamant that he's not going to ban fracking, that he believes in fracking. So that is bad. All right, um, the executive orders. In Biden's administration, in Biden's, essentially he had three promises, three things he was really going to focus on based on what we know from what he talked about. Because there was no really official plan came out. There's nothing that really you're talking about. One was uh, accountability for people that, um, that attacked the Capitol. You know, try and find accountability. Uh, we know the FBI is actively arresting these people, um, I think there was 500 or so people that actually entered the Capitol, and those are the people they're looking at. There were six deaths in all, um, injuries and whatnot. And, uh, of course, he is hes following. So there's, there's accountability, and he seems to be taking a back seat. You know, maybe this is Biden afraid to use the bully pulpit, afraid to use the power of the executive branch, afraid to be a president, or maybe this is him just invoking his years of being a senator because he is deferring to the Senate. Well, if you know anything about politics, you know that the Senate is an undemocratic institution, but it also is been a, the focal point of obstruction of government and the inability of the Senate to function for maybe the past 15 years has destroyed any agenda that has been desired at all. Whether that's his design or not, that is how it functions and has for a long time. So first, accountability. The second um, was his vaccine rollout. You know, he wanted to do a million uh, in the first 100 days, um, you know, a million a day, so 100 million. And they, he was questioned about this, and he's like, come on, man, you didn't even believe we could do this, and because they were almost already there before he even started doing anything. Um, and then now he has adjusted that to say, like, we're going to try and do more. Nothing really definitive, but vaccine rollout. Okay. And then economic relief. So the economic relief, as far as we know, he wants to put it in a a bundle. And instead of doing the $2,000 checks and getting a win right off, he's going to bundle it and put it out later. Why is that important? Well, the economic relief, these $2,000 checks that became $1,400 checks that were supposed to be immediate in 2000. And now uh, it, the word is that they're going to come out February, maybe March. And They're going to be 14, and he's going to means test them. It's going to take a longer time to get to the American people. So as far as having any actual immediate economic relief, it's just not true. It's not going to be immediate. And since he's mean testing it, people aren't going to get it, or it's going to be, you know, more of a select few that are going to get it. So he's already signaling that he doesn't want to do it. So... We could be generous and say, this is just bad strategy. Um, Biden, I do believe, is listening to people like Bernie Sanders. He is listening to people in the Senate. He's listening to many people, but the people that are closest to him are just like him in ideology, if not a little more hawkish in certain areas. Anthony Blinken, for example, is very much a fan of enforcing a coup in in Venezuela, in instilling Juan Guaido as the elected official, and in in saying he's defending democracy when he's actually taking away the will of the Venezuelan people who just elected Maduro. Um, the idea, uh, his his openness to negotiate before he even started doing anything. His his lack of plan has become a liability, right? Because his strategy is bad. He he leads with failure. He's not trying to win. He's not really strong in his position. So he's easily moved. He's telling everybody he's easily moved. He's telling everybody he's open to negotiation. Like he doesn't care. It's not like he's open to negotiation and he really wants to pass it. He said, "I want to do this, but maybe we can change it. Maybe we can move it around. Maybe we can make it work for everybody." That's just not a strong, strong hand to follow. And right now, we need some big things done, and we need bold moves. And he agrees with that, even saying healthcare is a human right. And then, is healthcare? He's like, "Oh, we need a public option." And now he's saying, "Oh, we're just going to cover Cobra, or you know, subsidies to cover Cobra." while people are out of work. It's insane. And he literally got a, a plan that was written by the healthcare industry. The health insurance industry gave him a plan. So it looks like he's going to go with that. Knowing him, you know, knowing what Obamacare was, the Heritage Foundation plan. So the strategy is that they're bundling everything together, all relief. It's gonna come sometime in February or March. Um, He's leading with failure, there's no kind of unity, there's no win, the promises are broken on the 2000 and immediate, and he's refusing to take power, He's refusing to use the executive branch. And he's renegotiating things that it seemed that he was very much for, like a public option. No one twisted his arm on that, he's the one who volunteered that. So it's just bad strategy in general. And as far as taking his time, right now, Biden's got peak popularity. He won. So you have to act now. You have to force your hand and you have to leverage the power and the popularity you have. And that's how you set the tone. And if you're like, we're going to do the most popular thing first and I'm a popular president, then that's how you can get people on your side. And you can leverage that against them later when you do want to do and things like immigration reform or climate change initiatives and bills. He, he's not doing anything. He's not coming strong with a, with a plan that's clear and definitive. He's not coming out every day and, and stumping for his plan. There is no plan. He's only got these three promises, and he's vaguely going to do anything about any of them. And that's kind of what he was always going to do. You can see him during the the Movement for Black Lives protest over the summer. He's just slow to do anything. And when he comes out about things, he says the wrong thing. He's not going to ban fracking. <laughs> He's not going to defund the police. You know? And there's even talk about... Uh, the national security state considering, you know, ramping up a a Patriot Act 2.0 and spying on Americans and treating Americans the way they treat terrorists abroad. And that's very, very scary. And the military industrial complex moving to Venezuela. That's very, very bad. You know, I'm not going to say that it's you know, good things are good and bad things are bad. You know the, the Iran deal is good, but this is this is not good. So, Biden had these three promises. He had bad strategy, and he's slow to do anything. Slow. He wants to mean test everything. Incrementalist. There is a fifteen dollars minimum wage bill that's going through, and it's going to incrementally increase from for the next four or five years to when he's out of office. So that's when we get a national $25 minimum wage. This is something that's been promised for the last 10, 15 years. And we have to wait another five years if they can pass it now. It's just unacceptable. It's ridiculous. It's insufficient and it is far too slow for real pain. I don't know what to say. It seemed like when Biden was the nominee, you had all of these people out there. You had Bernie Sanders and you had even Elizabeth Warren talking about massive change. You had somebody like Andrew Yang uh, talking about the UBI and you had Merriam Williams talking about what's an imperative. And then you had Mike Gravel and then you had all these other neoliberals that were just unimpressive and they didn't seem like they had what it took. And the king of the people didn't have it. It took was Biden, but then we all had to kind of eat it and follow him, and we did. And now this is how we're starting, and it's it's just insulting. He compared himself to FDR, and FDR won a huge victory where he did not win this huge victory. He was very clear what he wanted to do, and in the first five days he did it. In the first 100 days he had 15 different pieces of legislation passed. You can't say that you want to be big systemic change and you want the change we need, and you understand what the the costs are, what's at stake, and then you do this. You can't even make a a promise you made a week before, you can't even make good on that, the $2,000 checks. I really am shocked and dismayed. I didn't want to be right about being cynical about Joe Biden. I didn't vote for Joe Biden, and I'm not sorry I didn't vote for him. I'm just sorry that he had this chance and it looks like he's blowing it. And it's very concerning. Because we just saw the Capitol attacked. Because we just had Trump as a president. And what set that up? (sighs) Joe Biden's gonna bring it. He's gonna bring the end of America. And there's something in me that's patriotic, that loves that country, that wants that country to be the best version of itself. My country. I want it to represent me and I want everyone there to be taken care of and not to live in fear and despair and hate. Americans hate each other more than anyone else. Of all the richest nations in the world, the COVID hit the U.S. the worst. The worst of any nation in the world, not the richest nations. It's it's just unacceptable, and there's no recourse. It's the third part. The Democrats, what are their goals? What are the goals of the Democratic Party of today? We're not talking theoretically about what they used to be or what they could be. Well, let's talk first about what they do. They promote losers. If you lose an election, you know, like Kamala Harris, who uh, bowed out before uh before the first primary. And she was one of the like 24 candidates and she made a big deal about it. She even had a a nice hit at Biden in one of the debates and then she left the the, the elections, you know, because maybe she was worried about her Senate seat, but maybe something else. Jamie Harrison, he lost his Senate election and when it, I even gave money to him, and now he is being promoted to the head of the DNC. They promote losers. If you lose an election, but you make money for the party, then you're worth having around. Because moneymakers matter. Because our elections are all about money. But we know that's not true. If you were Bernie Sanders supporter, we know that he had more money than anybody. But they still promote losers. They actively avoid accountability or self-reflection. And you could see this. You know, the idea that they want to take on gerrymandering, that they want to somehow unify uh, do something about voting um, or even change their own internal politics about what they do with third parties. They want to win elections. And if there is no public outrage, they are not going to do anything. And we'll see. We'll see if they take up, you know, is it HR1, they, if they do anything about ethics reform, if they do anything about um, insider trading amongst congressmen and senators, if they do anything about. Uh, corruption and taking money from your relations or from your post in, in office. I, I just highly doubt it. They don't reflect on what they did right or wrong. They run the same playbook every time and they avoid any kind of accountability. You could even see it after they lost a lot of house seats. You know, Abigail Spanberger, who just squeaked by, lost a lot of her centrist colleagues And she blamed Black Lives Matter and she blamed the left. This is just a classic thing. She lost or nearly lost and people that, you know, have her ideology lost and the people that supported Black Lives Matter, people that supported more equity, people that were more progressive, they won their seats. But yet the fault is the people that want the more progressive things and the leadership listens to them. It's absolutely insane, this lack of internal accountability, Inter- the inability to even you know, have any self reflection on what actually happened. People are just ideologically fixed. It's scary because it shows that they're, in, able, they're unable to learn and they're incapable of receiving new information and adjusting. You can't win like that. There is a constant thing that's really crazy in, and we saw this all throughout Obama and now we're gonna see it in Biden, we already seen it. It's this self-negotiation. So they wanna take a position and then instead of taking the strongest position and then being in fighting for it and then working backwards in negotiation and maybe finding a middle ground that maybe that was their goal all along. They take the most moderate position that, and then they put that down. A great example is the $2,000 checks. Well, they said they wanted $2,000 checks. This is after everything was settled and they were, you were going to get them immediately. Now it's $1,400 checks and we're open to negotiation. What is that? Who does that? You're going to self-negotiate and compromise when no one even has demands of you. Then you're going to play a game of at at partisanship. like You're going to act them and they're going to force you down. And then when they don't support you, you go it alone with the pre-compromised and then actually compromised proposal that you put on the floor. And you don't get the support even for that. And then you push that. And you expect everybody that that's okay. Like, if they're going to get what they want and they don't have to support it, they win twice. This is how the Democrats concede. They're not fighting. They're just giving up. And, you know, virtue signaling. They they, they will say Black Lives Matter, but then they're not going to do anything to increase Black equity. They're gonna say that the voting rights matter, but they're not actually going to, you know, pass the voting rights amendment that's been on the floor. Um, and sometimes the, the GOP is the obstructionist. And other times, the Democrats love to play that the GOP's are, uh, uh, plan is the obstructionist. Now, they don't really have the excuses. And some say that they're unprepared How can a multi-billion dollar industry that is supported by huge lobbies be unprepared for winning? Be unprepared. When you see somebody like Bernie Sanders, who is in the Senate, and he is not in a position of leadership the way that Joe Biden is, or the Joe Biden administration is, and he has plans, and he's had plans the entire time. During the, the debates, he had plans. He knows how to listen to people and to adjust to them. He knows how to utilize his own people. They just don't want his plans. They're trying to include everybody. They're trying to pre-compromise because they don't stand for anything. You know, they just, and they lie. They lie saying things that are existential crisis or that we're in, we're, we we have an imperative or that healthcare is a human right, or that, you know, we have to be like FDR. All of these things are lies. Because it's an imperative, you got to do it now. But nothing in your agenda says that you do things now. The way you do everything is slowly and with compromise and with negotiation. You just don't have it in you, or you don't want to change things. So that's what they do now. Why they do it? Why? What I can understand is they always want to make the donors happy. They depend on the donors to for survival and they only want to do what the donors want. The big donors, not their constituents, not their electorate, the big donors. And they are sold on bipartisanship. And so what is bipartisanship? Well, just like Abigail Spanberger we were talking about. They ignore or shame leftists and minorities and the marginalized. And then they're like, well, you have to stay with us because otherwise you'd be with them in the GOP and they're worse. You know, they say things and you see this in the media all the time and you see it with some representatives they say Che Guevara, and they say Russia, and they say, you know, all this Cold War, war nonsense. And yeah, some people in the media have to face, face accountability. But the Cold War's been over for 30 some odd years. And they still harp on that. Because they know that the boomer generation just had it beaten into them. And it can win them elections. The thing is that there's millennials and there's Zoomers out there that are just not sold on this propaganda. And they're not getting their media sources, their news feeds from legacy media. It is a different world and they are in the past. And it's hurting all of us. So Bipartisanship. What does bipartisanship mean? It means economically conservative, means looking at the deficit, it means uh, tax cuts, trade deals, and war. Always war and imperialism. That's what bipartisanship is. It's the worst of America. They they want to appease the suburbanites and the liberals and these boomers, the people with money that donate to them, that are, that consider, you know, themselves Democrats first and foremost. There's a lot of people, you know, and this is similar to the GOP, a lot of people that are loyal to Trump before the GOP. And there's a lot of people that are my age, you know, I think everybody, the majority of people under 50 or 45 voted for Bernie Sanders and they, they consider themselves leftists or economic leftists or progressives or socialists or all of that. And that's not socially progressive. It's economically progressive. They want the Democratic Party to be the party of unions, the party of workers, the party of minorities, and the marginalized and poor and indigenous peoples, the party of the masses, so that the material conditions of people's lives can improve. And that is the focus of all policy. Problem is that there's maybe 40% of the electorate 30 45, 35% or 40%, you know, in the primary time before pandemic that were concerned with these kind of things, the material conditions and the working class. And the rest of them are comfortable. Are other, you know, are Republicans or they are, you know, consistent Democratic voters. Young people. And leftists don't believe in the Democratic Party. So they always try to appease these diehards, these liberals, these neoliberals, these right-wingers. And so when they divide the base and they blame the left, the left supports them anyway. Anyway there seems to be no consequence for their actions. Like just like there's no accountability and there's no, uh, there's, um, for their corruption, there's no accountability for them denying their electorate. There seems to be no consequence. There's no price to pay for shoving liberals in the face, uh, leftists in the face. Liberals will hold their, withhold their vote and they will not vote for you and you're depending on them. But when they can screw over the marginalized, and they can screw over the leftists, they don't ever pay a price. That's why. That's why they do what they do. It's why they aim to fail. The whole thing is just a show for leftists anyway. Because for liberals, you don't really have to even make the effort. They're kind of already down for all the bipartisanship. But if you think bipartisanship is this right-wing conspiracy and you hate it, then these so-called moderates are the worst, because they act like they might listen. They're not going to listen. Just a little summary. Um talked about some important things that happened over the week. We talked about Biden's missteps and what they could potentially mean. And we talked about the the goal of the Democratic Party. I wanted to kind of reiterate what the stakes are here. Pandemic is is likely to kill. It's already killed over 400,000 Americans, and the U.S. has had the worst response of any nation. Uh, essentially relying on state governments in our dual sovereignty system, which is something we should look at. Maybe the system needs to be changed from that. That there should be federal sovereignty, and that we can have local governments in conjunction of that, but. States have mishandled their governance, custody, responsibilities. And we could see that with elections and with uh, education. So it might be something that we really need to renegotiate. I don't think it will happen, but... Inequality is worse than the Gilded Age right now. It's out of control. Uh, the answer for that is nothing, no one's done anything. There, The CARES Act has accelerated inequality in a way that was unimaginable. Before that, the recovery after um, the subprime mortgage crisis in 2007-2008 that recovery also was hugely disproportionate. And so we have the bifurcation of America. Like, it is not a nation that is for the people or by the people. It is for one class that's very distinctly apart from the other classes, which are also becoming more and more alike. There is this lack of accountability, and so it's one of the things I think with Biden we're going to see is that that there is no accountability for his potential corruption or connections to China or or what he did in his past with the crime bill, with NAFTA. Um, All of these things, he wasn't ever held accountable for it. He just got into that position and he got signed off on, and then American people signed off on him. And... It's really insulting that that was the only option we had. But really what he did before, what he was part of before, was really what brought us Trump. And it looks like we're going to repeat that mistake. Noam Chomsky said recently that um, he sees America really facing fascism if we don't have change. Now, personally, I think that that's we have maybe a 10, 15 year window. 10 is actually being generous. So a 10 year window before fascism comes to the US. We saw it already peeking its head through with the attack. We saw it with Donald Trump and the way he was this three year old that tested everything. And he found the weaknesses and he told lies But some of those lies actually had truth in them. American democracy is not as strong as it could be. And the answer to that is somehow censorship in a police state and potentially a Patriot Act 2.0. We saw the Movement for Black Lives have the largest pro-sustained protest in the history of the U.S. and there's no change in the federal government. There's no response. There's no price that they have to pay for doing nothing. So, it's a scary time. Climate change, of course, is a crisis. And if we don't change things very soon, I think it's a 20, 25 year window so we're already seeing change, it's already irreversible changes happening. But dramatic change needs to really be curbed. And Biden has some movement on this, but these are the pressures that are hurting us. These are the things that we're all considering. These are the stakes. We need systemic change. We need many things that are very basic about our system to change. It's not just about who's driving the car. We need to actually change parts of the car itself. And that was very clear in the primary. And now, no one's saying a thing. That's very distressing. I imagine a world where we start to move in this direction with or without leadership. And I'm not talking about a revolution. I'm talking about mass movement, I'm talking about organization, I'm talking about political parties and unionization. I'm talking about co-ops. I'm talking about bringing hope back to America and having a base of economic and voter support so that we can take over smaller areas and maybe even states, and then eventually have our platform matter. It's very encouraging that you had somebody like Bernie Sanders bring this to us. It's very discouraging that we're likely to go into another war because Joe Biden was elected. So let's push, but let's not be naive and think that Joe Biden is gonna be FDR or Lincoln or even LBJ. The amount of change we're gonna get out of him it's just not going to be anywhere proportional to what's needed and hopefully as we saw with the GOP we will see with the the democrats and both parties will lose their grasp their grasp on the american electorate and we can get more people engaged in the system we can get more people actually expressing themselves through their electoral process and through ranked choice voting and through more rigorous debates with different parties that actually can represent people. I would love a leftist party, because I think leftists would really understand the stakes. we got a lot of work to do. Thank you for listening.